Welcome to Bold Girl Biz Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to fearless and brave entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Robbie Walls. So consider yourself one step closer to success. Why? Because you're going to hear lessons learned through failures, setbacks, and sometimes laughable moments in business. And the resilience it takes to get back up, shake it off, and move you from failure to success as a way to grow your business and build income. Let's go. Hey, welcome everyone to Bold Girl Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Walls. I am fascinated about today's guest. She comes from a lineage of two long-lasting family enterprises. Her family began in 1840 with the Henderson Estate Company, forerunner of the Sheraton Hotels, which her father co-founded. She's an author, speaker, and businesswoman. She graduated with honors from Harvard University and has a master's of public administration from George Washington University. She's the founder of Crees Farms, a family-owned company that owns commercial and real estate and agricultural land with vineyards that sells wine grapes to wineries. She has written more than 1,600 articles, a TV hostess, and producer. Her most passionate achievement is her mission to fight against human trafficking, which she founded when this fight. Here to talk, Bold Girl Biz is a bold girl talking biz. Let's welcome Mitzi Purdue to the show. Hi, Mitzi. Hi, Robbie. Hi, Robbie of the beautiful voice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I am so excited to just hear all of your, what you're doing, how you got to this point. I just want to jump right in. Thank you so much for being a guest on Bold Girl Biz. Oh, well, I'm absolutely enchanted and anything that I can do. I'll tell you something. I'm 79 and at 79, my world kind of revolves around to the extent that I can, being useful to younger people. So bring it on. All right. All right. Well, let's jump right in and let's talk about what it takes to start a business because you are the businesswoman. <laughs> well, I'll tell you about the business that I started. Uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the wine grape business. And if, if, you're, if you've drunk wine from Mondavi or Kendall Jackson or Joel Gott, Yes. About a dozen other wineries, there's a chance that you could have had grapes that I grew. And so drink lots of wine, everybody. Oh, yes, yes. Drink wine and be merry. <laughs> All right. But, but, but I'll share with you how I got into it and, and how I prepared for it. And yes. the biggest part is I'm from the East. I actually grew up in Boston. But when I moved to California, I was 28 years old and I came into an inheritance and I thought, yeah, I could let a bank manage it for me. But I thought it would be much, much, much more interesting to start and run a business. But I didn't just jump into it. I spent, I was living in California in an agricultural area and it made sense to go into agriculture. So I spent four years studying about it. Ah. And I'll tell you the kinds of things that I studied. I, I took university courses in agronomy, rural appraisal, agricultural accounting, 
uh, and, and learned more than I ever expected to about agricultural politics. Wow. And it, it wasn't until four years of studying everything I could about it, joining associations, hanging out with, with people who knew a lot about it. Uh, it wasn't until then that, that I was ready to buy agricultural land. And even then, each piece of property that I studied before buying, for every one that I bought, I bet I studied 40 pieces of, of, of land. Mm. So I guess point number one that I'd recommend to anybody, they probably don't have four years to, to, to invest in, in whatever they're going to start, but put a fantastic amount of energy into learning the business before you plunge in. Mm. Because the number of people I've seen who lost everything because they didn't take something into account. I mean, it's just tragic. So I'm a big favor if and before you put a dollar down, really know what you're, what you're aiming for. And by the way, that's more than just a business plan. It's, it's deep knowledge of what your competitors are up against and the, and the pitfalls wow. and just learning all the disasters as well as the good things that can happen. That is great advice. And I, um, I actually tell people that I work with that, that it, just to do that and people who want to buy a franchise, get in that franchise and at least for a year and work for it and listen, yes. listen to the, the employees, listen to the manager. Yes. I, I, I love that advice. Well, frankly, uh, at age 79, by the way, I'm proud of it. Yes. It's, it's so sad to people to see people not make a go of it. And sometimes, yeah, it's absolutely through no fault of their own life happens. Uh And as a matter of fact, I have an ancestor who built three businesses, actually built four, three of them went bankrupt, but he kept picking himself back up. He'd go bankrupt. We're talking actually a hundred years ago, more than that, a hundred and, I don't know, 150 or so years ago. Wow. Well, the Henderson family estate's been in business since 1840, so we're a very long-lived family. But this ancestor of mine, you know, bank panics or one thing or another would cause him to go bankrupt. And what he would always do would be he'd say, I'm going to make it all back again. And then he'd pay off his creditors before he started making money for himself. And three times he went bankrupt, lost everything that he had. Three times he picked himself back up and... The fourth time was a charm. He did wonderfully. Nice. Yes, that and that is a very big testament of business. When we fall or fail, get back up. And like like you said, I'm going to make it all back again. In fact, can I share a story about my father? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Let's go back into the beginning. Yes, tell us about your father. Yes. Okay, and this is sort of on the theory that that people have an interest of, uh, of how very, very successful people, how they were. And my father was the co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotel chain. And you know, a quick aside, we sold it on his death, which was oh, 40 years ago. So I'm not connected with the Sheraton Hotels now. But I asked him, I might've been eight years old and we were at our summer cottage in New Hampshire. And I watched this man who employed 20,000 people he had 400 hotels at the time of his death. So you know, this Amazing. is a really successful guy. Yes. I watched him and it was in the country and he was chopping wood. 
and I don't know if you've ever watched somebody chop wood, but if you're if you're really good at it, yeah, if you're really good at it, there's there's a very rhythmical thing where you lift the you, you heft the, the axe up and you swing it from your back and you just with an almighty wallop, it comes down. And if you're good at it, you go exactly to where the previous chop had been. And even though I was really young, I could tell that good lord, this guy knows what he's doing because you know a great big heavy axe and to have it with a, the full powerful swing land exactly where it's supposed to, yeah. and that takes doing. Yeah. But I asked him, little girl that I was, daddy, you don't have to do this. Why don't you pay somebody to do it for you? Ah. Well, I mean, because if he employs 20,000 people, what, what's he doing chopping wood? Right, right. And his answer, which uh, influenced me the rest of my life was, first of all, I enjoy it. You know, it's good exercise. Mm -hmm. But he said, second, if I lost everything that I have, it wouldn't rearrange my mental furniture in the least because I know that I could always land in my feet and I could always make a go of it. Oh, wow. That is powerful. That What's is powerful. That yes. Yes. So with I that feel if, I, if I lost everything I have, yep. I think I'd be fine. Yes. Yeah. And you will uh, just because of that seed that just was planted into your little soul at eight years old. Wow. Yeah. He was a great guy. I'll, I'll share something else about a, an ultra successful person. Fast forward, maybe three or four years, I'm probably 12. And I walk into his study one Saturday afternoon. And I knew that he could be out playing golf or tennis or something. But there he is, you know, surrounded by books and papers and just deep in, obviously, work. So I asked him, yeah, what are you doing, Daddy? And he said that he was giving away money. Uh, he was you know, researching different people who would, or organizations that, that, charitable organizations that wanted money. And, but why are you doing that, Daddy? And he said, because the most pleasure my money ever gave me was in giving it away. Oh, the power of giving. Oh, that is amazing. I love that. Yes. I, I have a theory of how he was able to build an organization from not a single employee to 20,000 at the time of his death. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're going to build an organization that big, you probably have to have some pretty extraordinary human relations skills. Yes. Yeah, so talk about that. Cause that's what I want. So you've, you've heard all of this good, good meat that's in your soul right now. And it's feeding you. What did that do for you? Well, I want to share, well, first of all, uh, I consider myself a happy person. And I think he gave me values that lean towards happiness. Absolutely. Because as my mother used to say, the givers of the world are happy. The takers, you know, the people mm -hmm. who just yes. taking everybody else's stuff, they're miserable. Mm -hmm. so she you know, true. Uh, but but how father the father's people skills uh, do I have permission to monologue for about three minutes because it's a big absolutely start. yes please yes yes uh, I, okay I appreciate permission because I consider it horribly rude for a guest to monologue too much because your listeners tuned in to hear you not me <laughs> They tuned in to hear both of us because we share same values and knowledge. So yes, give it to us. Gosh, I love being on your show. <laughs> Thank you. But, but, but the story, uh, 
father told me one day that, uh, you know, I'm asking him, how did you make such a success of things? And I asked him that question all the time. And he had many different versions of, of what it took to be a success. But the one that stuck most in my mind, he said, whenever he'd take over a hotel and he started out in the great depression. Mm. And he said, when he'd take over a hotel, particularly at the beginning, he'd invite all his new employees the day he took possession. He'd invite all of them into the ballroom of whatever hotel it was. And he said that he knew going in that everybody there, there might be 400 people, there might be 600 or 800 because hotels employ a lot of people. Yes. And he said that he knew that every one of them was as demoralized as a human being could be because mm. it's very customary when somebody takes over a hotel to quote, clean house, that is get rid of the dead wood and bring in your own friends and uncles and cousins and nephews. Okay. So he knew that everybody there was worried about being losing their job. And if you lose your job during the Great Depression with 25% unemployment, you're on the breadline if right. you're lucky. I mean, you're not going to get another job. So father knew this. The first words out of his mouth, he's standing up on the stage of the ballroom. And the first words out of his mouth is, or was, I want every one of you to keep your job. And then he explained why. He said, because I know that you know your job better than anybody else in the world. Yes. And my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how great you are. And you'll see in a few months, this hotel is going to turn around. It's going to become the most popular hotel in the whole city. We are going to be an example to the rest of the city that bad as times are, things can turn around and you're part of that. I want you to stay. Is that not a good message? I love that. That is, yes, that is a good message. A message. My soul just went. <laughs> but that's just the beginning of the story because it goes on. Oh my goodness. Yes. Share. Told me that, yeah, that's a good start. Uh -huh. But so far it's just words. He said the next day he would have hired all sorts of people to help refurbish the hotel, such as decorators, plumbers, electricians, uh, just people who could make the hotel get spruced up. But he said the people who worked for the hotel would generally be very surprised when they'd see that you know, dozens and dozens of these people who are coming in to spruce up the hotel didn't go to the areas that the paying public would see. Mm. No, they'd go to the areas that only the employees would ever see, like the employee lockers, showers, dining room. Uh, and so, you know, little girl that I am, I said, but why would you put the first money there? Because, you know, this is me, little girl speaking, because you're not getting any money back from that. I mean, I don't understand. Right, right, right. And his answer was that a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. Mm -hmm. And when I upgrade their areas first, that communicates to them how important I know that they are. Cool. Oh, that is amazing. Yes. What and a simple way to, to, to put that in your, in, inside of the employees. And the wonderful, wonderful thing is uh, he was famous for having people stay with him for life. And it's that kind of relationship that, yeah. that cemented it. But, but there's, there is another part to the story. 
share. So I asked him, you know, daddy, why did you tell everybody that they could keep their job? I mean, why not make them earn it? What, you know, may, maybe there's some rotten people there. Why, why did you do it that way? You know, you promised everybody that they'd keep their job. And he said that in his world, there were three ways of getting people to do what you want. I mean, you're, you're a manager. You have to get things done through other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what a manager does. He gets right. things done through other people. So to get people to do what you want, in his world, there were three ways. The first of two of which he thought were terrible and the third, which he loved. The first one is he said, I could have stood up there in that stage and I could have told them, shape up or you're fired. He said, that's intimidation. Mm. And he said, intimidation actually does work but it works grudgingly. People will do the least that they can get by with without being fired. So in his world, you know, intimidation was a really bad way of going about it. Mm. Number two, which I'm thinking that a lot of people today do, but here's father's view of it. He could have stood up there in front of them and said, do a great job and there's a bonus in it for you. Or do a great job and there's a raise in it for you. Yeah. But he said, the problem with that is it's transactional. People work for the short-term goal. Oh, and you always have to keep upping the ante. Mm, So he felt, you know, intimidation's the worst. Bribery is, it's not terrible, but it's not, it's not as good as it could be. Right. So guess what the third one is? No, I won't put you in the spot because I can't, you can't get in the minds of Ernest Henderson from 1930s. But, <laughs> but, but here's what he thought was the right way to get people to do what you want. And it is inspiration. Because he said, the person who's working, you, you assume for a second that, I don't know, let, let's say that you're a maid making beds and you can frame it that I'm making these beds. I actually hate my job, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I'm getting money and I, I can put food on the table for my kids. Right. Support my That's family. one way of framing it. He wanted to frame it and did. No, you're not making beds. You're not cleaning up a room or you're not waiting on table or tending bar. No, you're part of a team that's going to make this the best most popular, most successful hotel in the whole city. You're part of a team that's going to show the rest of the world that things can turn around. And this gets back to give people a better vision of themselves. But then there was another saying that he had that connected to this, which is people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Ah. And when you have inspiration, when you tell people that you believe in them and that they're building something together that's much bigger than themselves, people have a compulsion to live up to your expectations. And it builds their confidence as well. Wow. That is amazing. Thank you for those stories. Well, that to my mind, I have shared with you the secret of how no hotels and no employees became 400 hotels and 20,000 employees. Wow. Thank you. Wow. I love that. I love that. Now let's do a little shift and talk about uh, your late husband and Purdue Farms. I, I always felt that, that it was a, 
an astonishing miracle how much Frank Perdue had values that were similar for Frank from my late father's. Mm. Frank was also, if, if I were writing a novel, I wouldn't believe this, but I've lived through it and it's true. Frank had almost the same story as, as my father. Frank oh. wrote the chicken company from no employees to 20,000 at the time of his death. I, yeah, how could, and, but I think he did it in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. Frank's, uh, there is a quote that applies to how Frank treated people. And it's a quote from a psychiatrist from 100 years ago. The guy's name was William James. And he said, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. Mm. And so Frank understood that. And I got to, to be a witness kind of up close and personal for how this influenced Frank's thinking. Because when we first got married, and we're talking 1988, I guess that's 32 years ago. All right, 32 years ago, we had just gotten married and we we're just coming back from our honeymoon. And I told him, just sort of out of the blue, kind of shocking to him, I told him, Frank, I think we should entertain every single person who works for the company. Mm-hmm. And he said, that doesn't make sense. There's 16,000. No. And I pretended that I hadn't understood that he had said no. And I said, I think we should have them 100 at a time. And he said, no, that's way too many. And I said, let's start with the secretaries because or administrative assistants, because they could tell everybody that our parties are fun and not scary. And you again, no. And (laughs) I said, you know, I bet we could put this together in six weeks. Let's try for the end of September. No, that's way too soon. (laughs) So we kept going round and round with my proposing that we entertain every single person who works for the company in our home for dinner, 100 at a time. And initially the answer was, yeah, what planet did she come from? <laughs> but but gradually, you know, as, as we continued, his attitude changed from, you know, this is crazy to maybe there's something to it. Right. Until finally, I like it. Ah. And six weeks later, we did start. And I know why he was hesitant to begin with, because Frank Perdue was, you know, in many years ago, he was he was a very much public speaker, uh, public figure. But he was also an extremely shy person, and he had kind of worked to transcend his shyness. But the idea of hundreds of people in his home over and over again, it was just so far out out of his comfort zone. But he was willing to do it for, and my whole story is working up to this point. Mm -hmm. For him, this was a way of showing the people who worked with him that they were important to him. Because if you entertain somebody in your home, it sends a signal. And so pretty much three times a month, most months of the year, you know, for the rest of, of our time together until he passed away 17 years later, we did have groups of, of 100 at a time. And at these parties, there were, there were buffets. And Frank often would stand behind the buffet line and wait on his employees. Oh, yeah. Does that not communicate to you that you're important absolutely yes it does yes and then and then at the end uh you know he'd he'd stand up in front of 100 or so people and he'd tell what was going on in the company 
then he'd tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, we got the so-and-so contract, or there's a storm that's shutting down the such-and-such plant, you know, whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. He would he would let them in on, you know, just the inner workings of the company, you know, straight from the horse's mouth. And, you know, I'd watch the audience and people were just sort of, you know, with slack jawed in fascination, you know, hearing <laughs> from the big boss himself in his home telling them what what the whole group was up against. And then at the very end, um, always in different words, but it would boil down to this. He'd say, you know, again, in different words, but I know the company wouldn't be what it is today without you. Thank you. Oh, that must have just made every employee feel so valued and special. Well, they first of all, they told me that. Oh. <laughs> but, but, but something very moving to me, I used to attend funerals because we regarded the people who work with Purdue as family. So I would attend funerals. And you know, quite a few times, the next of kin would tell me that one of the most meaningful and moving events in the deceased's life mm. was being entertained personally by Frank in his home. Oh. I love that. That's amazing. Yes. And I like feel- my father, Frank was completely famous for if you started working with him, you worked for him for life. Oh, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, he did a number of things that, that I think others could copy. Uh, one of them is he knew thousands of names. And if we'd go through, uh, when we, during his lifetime, he had 16 processing facilities. And often that employ a thousand or more people. And Frank would walk through with me tagging after him the, the lines mm-hmm. where people are working. And the number of names he knew, and not just the names, but you know, he'd introduced me to you know, Delcy. Delcy's son just got into college, he'd tell me. Or, or meet Antonio. Uh, Antonio has been here for 30 years and never had a sick, sick day. And yeah, how, how he can know so many names, I don't know. That's the power of connection. Wow. Yeah, the- and I used to think, I, I made it almost like a hobby to see how he communicated with people. Mm. And one of the things he did, which I admire no end, and I, I aspire to do it, but I fail all the time. But here's what he would do. When he's talking with somebody, 90% of the time he was listening, only 10% talking. Yes. And that makes the person who's, yeah, he's asking you questions and you feel 10 foot tall because Frank Purdue is just totally fascinated by whatever you're saying. And, and it, it was magical. I bet. Wow. Thank you for that. Yes. And that, you know, that tells me a lot about yourself because I know that your true mission is to give meaning to all your efforts. You've learned so much, you know, and give a part of your life to help being others. And that is, that is so big. That just speaks volumes to helping others. And that, that is your stories exactly tell exactly what, how you lived and how you saw your father and your late husband do exactly that. They were good at it. I mean, I I do think that the things that I've been describing, if you're, if you want to employ people, 
people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Yes. Give people a better vision of themselves. And the deepest principle of human nature is the craving to feel important. That is, you got that right. Yes, they do. (laughs) Thank you for that. So let's shift a little bit for today and tell, um, tell us, I know that you have another big mission that you, um, that you have founded. Say a little bit about that. I know you had a story to tell us about that. Oh, what, what uses up probably 18 hour days for me is the struggle against human trafficking. And I'm, I'm going to guess that some of our audience is very familiar with the issue, probably too familiar. I mean, I, I hope, oh, I dearly hope that nobody who's listening to us has been personally touched by it because I think it's the worst scourge in the world. But up until maybe a year and a half ago, the word human trafficking just, yeah, it's just sort of glide by. I didn't really relate to it until I heard a lecture that told it was a particular case, but it was a group of little girls. They were 12 years old and they had just been rescued from being trafficked. Mm. And I learned that you know, for years that they had been forced to have sex with strangers 12 times a night, 365 days a year. And by the way, I want to ask your advice tactically on the wording of something. Sure. Is it more powerful to say that they were raped 12 times a night or forced to have sex with strangers? 12 times a night forced forced to have sex yes as opposed to raped as opposed to rape yes uh-huh. yeah okay that's that's sort of how it feels to me but i uh, i wanted advice yeah <laughs> okay yeah. Uh, anyway so i hear this lecture and i suddenly realized no human trafficking isn't like i don't know the movie pretty girl where there's a prostitutes have a beautiful life no it's it's continuous unending, how about total misery and their life expectancy? If, if, if you're 12 and you're being trafficked, mm. you're probably gonna be dead in seven years and you're gonna die of an overdose or suicide or disease or murder for your organs. Oh, this is, so when you got into this foundation uh, and you are your passion is all for it, um, what exactly, uh, is your part. I know that you help raise the money, but you do something else. Cause I've, I've heard a story in the C-suite network. Um, say a little bit more about that. I'd love to. Uh, I, I started a foundation. It's called win this fight and you can go to it. As a matter of fact, I, I want to invite people if they have a cell phone to have it ready, because I'm going to ask you to text something to something. Okay. Well, yes. you did, but I'll, I'll give people time to, to, pick up their their cell phones and, and I'll tell them first what they're getting in for the <laughs> like uh-huh win this fight I've in the year and a half since since I got interested in this I've done articles on at least 60 other organizations now let's ask what they need because mm-hmm. I don't want to duplicate what they need and I think it's fair to say that virtually every anti-trafficking organization and there are thousands of them can use more money in order to carry out their services and they can use awareness. So I decided to start an organization that would help with fundraising and with awareness. And initially it was going to be, uh, I would enable ultra high net worth people to put up things like jewelry or works of art for an auction 
in which they could say, yeah, maybe you've got a work of art in storage. It could be auctioned and the money would go directly to the anti-trafficking organization of their choice. We're still going to do that. But that, because of COVID-19, that's been put on hold until COVID-19 is in the rearview mirror. Okay. So what do we do meanwhile? Yeah. Aha, since we're about raising money and raising awareness, and I'm not raising money for my own organization, I'm raising money for others. And this is what I'm just itching to share with everybody. And, and do keep your cell phone handy because I am gonna ask you to, to text. Well, I'll tell you now, yes. but I'll repeat it later. Uh, text Rosie, uh, as in Rosie the Riveter. And spell text that for us, please. The good thing is I have both names reserved. It's oh. R-O-S-I-E or R-O-S-Y. Perfect. Perfect. You thought of everything. Perfect. Well, <laughs> I wasn't sure how it was spelled. And it, you know, if I have seen it recently, couldn't remember, I don't expect anybody else to get it right. So spell it any, any way that R-O-S-Y or R-O-S-I-E. I-E. Okay. And text it to 51555. But I will repeat that if you didn't get it. But here's, here's what's going on. A brilliant volunteer for the organization said, let's have a Rosie the Liberator. And that's sort of a takeoff on Rosie the Riveter. We want to have a 21st century version of Rosie the Riveter. Mm. The, the woman who in the 1940s, uh, women helped change the course of the war and helped us win against just an unspeakable monstrosity, namely Nazism. Uh, by women taking up the flag and going to work in the factories and, and making it possible uh, for more men to go fight. I mean, that, that is how it was phrased back in the 1940s. Uh -huh. We would have a, a 21st century version of Rosie the Riveter. And the idea is that we all take selfies, <laughs> which we pose and as Rosie the Riveter. And you don't need a, a bandana to do it. So, uh, so she is putting a red polka dot bandana on her. And then I'm, I'm doing a Rosie the Riveter pose. And she's doing the Rosie the Riveter pose. Yes. With your fist up and you yeah, my fist flex, up and, you flex know, my, your muscles. I don't have any. <laughs> or I could fake it. <laughs> Just fake it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love The that. idea is, let me tell you where, where, where it's going. Okay. The idea is. Take a picture of yourself, post it in social media, uh, and then and then invite your friends to do the same thing. And then come to winthisfight.org. And the easiest way to get to winthisfight.org is the, the text message I'm about to give you. Okay. But or or just go there directly. But post the picture. And we're having there, there's a contest. Do you can you look most like Rosie the Riveter? Do you have the most outrageous, the most artistic, the most innovative, the funniest? And we've already gotten some really funny ones. I mean, one person had, had her little dog with, with a bandana and you don't have to have so a bandana. Cool. I mean, just, uh, we want you. But once you're there, uh, we'll invite you to donate to the anti-trafficking organization of your choice. Nice. And you have raised awareness and while you're at the site, I'd love it if you'd sign up for my newsletter because my newsletter uh, comes out once a week and it has information that I think you'll find fascinating. I mean, people who read it tell me that they do. It's things like I interview psychologists of why does the John do it? 
or what's it like what's it like for the little girl what's yes. going through her mind i talked with a man who treats them he's he's the former chairman of the department of psychiatry at langone university medical center mm -hmm. so but there's there's are i mean there's just so much interesting things but the biggest thing that you'll get if you come to my website you'll get information on how to spot trafficking or what to do if you see it because frankly, it's all around us. But if you don't know the signs, it's invisible to you. Once you see them, oh boy, do you see them. Because there are 42 million people who are being trafficked. There are a million children who are being sex trafficked and their lives are a living hell. Mm. So everyone, let's get out there and support this. Um, Mitzi, tell us again, how can everyone get in touch with you? Okay, the easiest, if you have a smartphone, is text ROSIE, that can be R-O-S-Y or R-O-S-I-E, mm -hmm. to 51555, and that will give you a link to my website. Alternatively, go to winthisfight.org, and I'll give you a quick, easy, naughty way to remember winthisfight.org. The okay. initials are... Yeah. And people have asked me, do you know what you're saying? And yeah, I do. WTF. <laughs> the initials of when this fight are WTF. And you know what that means? Well, no, it doesn't mean that, but that will. Well, happen. actually, no, I want people, I want people to remember it. And yes. one of our volunteers is a neuroscientist. And he said, to get people to remember things, you have to have something just sort of slightly wrong. And right. he told me, you know, you come across as slightly ladylike and it's just very incongruent that you know about WTF. <laughs> and so it's memorable. So uh, if you're have, having trouble remembering the name of Win This Fight, think of Mitzi Purdue and WTF. Hey, that's right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. And as we wrap this up, this has been absolutely amazing talking with you today. Thank you, Mitzi. This has been just a wealth of, of lessons learned of um, new information and um, some action points to go and definitely support this mission that Mich that Mitzi is so very passionate about. Um, thank you so much, Mitzi. Do you have any lasting words for us? Uh, yes, one thought, which is if you do come to winthisfight.org, you'll have an opportunity to volunteer and it can be something that involves minutes or days or hours. And I promise I won't ask you for any money or any time that you don't actively want to donate. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much, Mitzi. Well, audience, um, there are two ways to learn, make your own mistakes or learn from others. And we have done that today. I'm your host, Robbie Walls, and I am here to help you grow your business with new strategies and different ideas so that you sell more and sell better without needing years of experience. It's time to take massive action in business and be your bold self. Text the word BOLD, that's B-O-L-D, to 55312 and schedule 30 minutes to work with me personally. I love you for listening. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening to Bold Girl Biz. If you've enjoyed today's lessons learned, leave us a comment or review. And for today's show notes, head over to boldgirlbiz.com and click podcast. 
While you're there, you'll find tools to help you power through your journey to success to achieve your goals. Always remember, I believe in you, you are powerful, and you are bold. See you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.